So today I want to talk about, um, our title really is Unveiled Faces. So if we could have just the first slide on that. Um, it really comes from this scripture that we have in Second Corinthians 3.18, which says, We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And uh, what this describes really is, is the process of transformation that happens as we get to gaze upon God and, and we see him and he sees us and we have the freedom to have that relationship. And that freedom then as we encounter God and as we see him, transformation happens in us. Um, and it's actually that transformation in us as we become more like God, that gives him glory and honor as we become more like him. And the Spirit works in us to bring about change and transformation. And what we need to realize is the only reason that that, that is even possible is because of what Jesus has done at the cross. Because without Jesus, we would never be able to see God. We would never be able to encounter God. And so we have this awesome privilege that um, maybe we just need to have a little think about what that means and how that looks, um, you know, because Jesus has done this. And so it says in uh, Colossians 1 verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So we were enemies from God. We were separated from God because of us, because of our evil behavior. And we know that. But because of what Jesus has done, we are free to come into God's sight and presence. And what actually happens is that we are presented holy before God. We are like him in his holiness. And that is what enables us to come into his presence. Um. But what we need to realize is that, that whilst we're presented holy, there's a work of transformation, a work of change that also happens in our lives as we are transformed into his likeness. But every time we see God, every time we get, catch a glimpse of him, of who he is, a desire should rise up from within us to want to change, to want to be more like him. But the problem that we have is, is that quite often we're just comfortable in in the way that we are. Uh, and the idea of change seems like a painful process. We're to told to do things like pick up our cross, to die to self, and to live to Christ. We're told to be transformed, not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed. And why would we do this? And, and doesn't that sound painful? And when I was thinking about the pain of that, I was thinking about this little quote um, that supposedly comes from, from Michelangelo. Um, he didn't, uh, wasn't an English speaker, so it's not an exact quote, obviously. Um, but it says, every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. And it's said of Michelangelo that he would go to a quarry, and he would look through these big blocks of stone, and he would go, nope, nope. No, and the guys are like, but they're all just big blocks of stone. He's like, no, no. And then he'd see one, and he goes, right, I can see it. And one of his most famous sculptures would be, um, you know, David. And it said that when he saw the block, he could see the finished work inside of it. 
And I think that's a wonderful picture of like how God sees us, is that we just feel like a big block of stone sometimes, all rough around the edges and stuff, but God sees the beauty of who we are becoming, and, and he wants to chip away at all the rough edges to bring a beautiful sculpture out, which was the, the image of, of who we were created to be in the first place. And do you know what that image is? It's also the image of God himself, that in a way God wants to bring out the image of himself in us. And so we have to go through this process of change, this process of transformation to become more like him. But what is he like? And that's really what has uh, been stirring in my heart over the last few weeks and months in, in different ways. I've probably found myself on my knees more often in worship and prayer than I have in a long, long time. Because every time I catch a glimpse of God, I realize I'm not like him. I'm really not. But I know that he's calling me to become more like him. And I know that because of what Jesus has done, I have the freedom to go on that journey. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to turn in your Bibles. And there are Bibles at the end of the row. Uh, and I'd love you to, to look at this, these verses uh, from Isaiah. It's chapter 6. And um, Isaiah was a, was a prophet, and he spoke actually over the course of about 50 years to um, a number of kings. Uh, and at that time, uh, Israel was, was reasonably prosperous. The kings there, um, some were good, some were bad. But it was a time really where people weren't that interested in God. They hadn't really caught a vision of who he was. And so they tended to live very kind of... Uh, weak spiritual lives, but uh, Isaiah comes in uh, to that picture. And what we have in chapter 6 is a vision, is a revelation of God that Isaiah has. And uh, the words are on the screen as well, but I love that you would look at it in your Bible. So let me tell you something very briefly. Um, do you know what the most published book in the world is? The Bible? No, it's not. It's the Ikea catalogue. The most published book in the world is the Ikea catalog. It used to be the Bible, but it's not anymore. And um, I think there's something like 200 million Ikea catalogs, uh, which are, are published every year. And there's, there's a slight difference between the Ikea catalog and the Bible, isn't there? The Ikea catalog you get for free, but everything in it you have to buy. You have to buy a Bible but everything that is in it is available for free. Isn't that good? I didn't actually come up with that, but it, <laughs> it's still good. But it just, so you think, well, um, isn't it sad that, that actually a, a catalog that is about buying stuff and filling your life with stuff that you don't really need most of the time is more popular and more widely read than God's word? The living word, the living truth. And so we have to value and desire to have the word. And so we just encourage you to um, look at it. Okay, so here we are in Isaiah chapter 6. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorsteps and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And so we have this amazing description, this picture of Isaiah, and he has a revelation of the throne room of God. And on that, in that throne room, he, he sees the Lord Almighty. And um, high and exalted, the train of his robe filled the temple. Actually, when I was studying this, I realized that, that Isaiah doesn't tell us what God looks like. He tells us about everything else. He doesn't tell us what God looks like. And there's a sense in which there's a hiddenness still within that picture. But he sees something of God. And these angels here crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory and the place is shaking. You know, these angels who are pure beings, you know, there's no sin in them. But there's still the sense of reverence and awe that they cover their faces that they cover their feet, that they're, they're flying around and they're declaring the greatness of God. And Isaiah says, I am undone. I am ruined. I am, and I get this, for me, I get this picture. It's almost like he's probably lying there like a bag of kind of bones, just completely falling apart because he has seen God and he's seen that God is holy. He's holy. And um, he's seen God's glory. And he, he just can't do anything. He can't say anything. He, he recognizes his own sinfulness as he uh, sees God's holiness. And the closest thing that we get to in Scripture about understanding what this, this is like is probably in the life of, of Moses. You see that Moses actually said, God, could I see your glory? Uh, and God says to him, no, you can't because you'll die. If I actually come and reveal myself in all my fullness, you'll die. But, it, but and, and I have this kind of funny kind of picture where God says, I'm gonna pa- all my goodness is going to pass through you, and I'll let you see my back. Um, you know, and, and God obviously isn't uh, in human form, but it's a sense in which I'm going to let you see part of me. You're not going to see my fullness. You're going to see me in, in that way, and the fullness of my glory, but I'll let you see something of me. Um, and there's this encounter with the living God. And we can have great times of worship. And we can think, you know, isn't it great that we felt the presence of God? And we want more. But you know, when I read passages like this, I wonder, do I want more? Do I really want more? Because if, if Isaiah is lying in a heap on the ground saying, I'm undone, I'm a mess. God is holy. And we want to see God move in power. We want to see him come more. We want to encounter him. We want to see uh, our, our lives change and transformed, our families, our town, our land. But 
what if it comes at the cost of us having to see God as he really is? Are we willing to actually have that encounter? And we should contend for more in our lands. But what I've realized is that, that if you, you cry out for revival, if you want to see God come in power, that the consequence is that you will have to behold his holiness. And that seems like a scary thing. Okay, so I've done that. So I want this as well. You don't have to look at this in your Bible. You can look at it on the screen. But uh, there's another very similar encounter. I'm just going to read it through quickly. But again, you start to get this picture. Uh, And this comes from a vision that John had uh, at the end of his life. uh, uh, Sort of talking about the apocalyptic future. Um, And it says that in Romans 4 verse 6, he has this vision again of heaven's throne room. And it says, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Then the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So anyone that gazes upon God, who sees him, who experiences him, gives glory and honor and praise and worship and that's what's going on right now in the heavens is that people are declaring that God is holy and the encounter is not about his power necessarily it's about his holiness it's about his holiness and one day every single one of us will stand before that throne before god everyone christian or non-christian will stand before the throne of god they will give an account for how they have lived and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and Paul writes about that in, in Romans. Um, I can't remember whether I put that on the screen or not. I did. There you go. Everyone will see him and everyone will declare that he is holy. So what is holy? What does it mean? It means to be set apart. The first time we come across holiness in the Bible is when God creates the world and he sets a day apart, a day apart as holy. So that day is set apart, it's separate, it's different from the other six days of the week. And on that day in particular, we worship, we glorify, we honor God on this day that's different and set apart. It speaks of holiness, speaks of purity. It speaks of otherness, something that's completely different to us and beyond at times our understanding. Um, it's undefiled, the pure nature of God, whiter than the whitest snow, more pure than anything else, 
Even as we attempt to describe holiness, the words fail us. They're trying to describe the very nature of God. And holiness is the prime revelation of the nature of God. See, God is love, and God is loving. But he's holy, and he loves us. Because we can love, right? And we're not holy. God is Father, but he's a holy Father. There are lots of fathers out there in the world, but they're not all holy. God is great, he's mighty, he's powerful, but everything comes from the place of his holiness. It is the primary revelation of who he is. Um, a brilliant quote here by uh, a woman called Helen Roosevelt. She was a missionary um, to what was called at the time uh, the Congo in Africa. She was a WEC missionary for a long time. She wrote an amazing book. I'm going to read you a quote from it later. Um, but it says this, God is holy. This fact shines out of every page of the scriptures, brilliant as the midday sun. It begins to blind one to all other factors, just as the sun's light is broken down by a raindrop into the separate colors of the spectrum, into the many colored spectrums of all his attributes, his goodness and mercy, his loving kindness and forbearance, his righteousness and justice, his truth and wrath, so that we can see and understand what makes up his holiness. He's holy. He's set apart. He's different from us. If we, like Isaiah, came into his presence, we would know that. And we would worship him. And we would declare, God, you're so, so much different from us. You're so holy. You're so pure. You're so different. We would struggle to find words and so sometimes um we use this word otherness um which i, I it's like it's kind of a, a word that nobody else really uses apart from christians because we're trying to describe who god is he's other than us and um I, i've got another great quote for you and this one is from matt redman who's a well-known worship leader and he says i've come to love that word otherness it's such a great worship word Otherness gives us a sense that God is so pure, matchless and unique that no one else, nothing else even comes close. He is altogether glorious, unequaled in splendor and unrivaled in power. He is beyond the grasp of human reason, far above the reach of even the loftiest scientific mind. He is inexhaustible, immeasurable and unfathomable. Eternal, immortal, and invisible. The highest mountain peaks and the deepest canyon depths are just tiny echoes of his proclaimed greatness. And the blazing stars above, the faintest, faintest emblems of the full measure of his glory. And so when we see him, we worship him. We declare his greatness. We declare his goodness because he is different from us. And we worship him with songs, yes. Uh, and a few people have said to me over the years, Do you know, I'm not really in to worship. It's not really my thing. And what they mean is they're not really into singing congregationally. But we can't not really be in to worship as Christians. We can't. You just can't do that. You can't be a Christian and not be into worship to declare the greatness and goodness and wonder of God. Because if we even catch the smallest glimpse of him, 
we will live our entire lives, not just our singing on a Sunday, in worship to him. This is another great quote. Um, it says, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of the mind with his truth, the purifying of the imagination of his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of the will to his purpose. And I've just highlighted those, those words, all our nature, our conscience, our mind, our imagination, our heart, our will, everything that we are and everything that we have becomes an act of worship to God because he is different from us. And so we think about Moses, uh, this man who, who had a, a real relationship with God uh, from the Old Testament. And, and probably one of the first times that we, we encounter this word holiness is with Moses in the burning bush. Most of us know that story. I'll not go into it. But you know that Moses comes up to this burning bush and God says, Stop, for the place you're standing on is holy ground. And Moses needs to take off his shoes because he's coming into the presence of God. He has to stop. He can no longer continue in this normal pattern. Something has to change. In this case, he has to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. And do you know what? The ground wasn't holy. Ground's not holy. Sure it's not. God is holy. It's the presence of God that makes things holy. It's the presence of God in you that makes you holy. That's why God sees you as holy, because of what Jesus did at the cross. Makes us this acceptable resting place for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in you is making you holy. It's making you acceptable. It's making you presentable in God's sight. And then, so when Moses experiences that God is holy, he, he starts to find out. He's like, but God, I don't know your name. And, uh, and God says, well, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And um, it, it kind of, it's a bit of a funny name for God to give of himself. But what he is saying is, Moses, you've come into my presence. I want to show you who I am. Come on, we'll go on a journey together. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. If you walk with me, I will show you who I am. And so every time that uh, the children of Israel found out something about God, they gave him another name. They, they gave him another name to say, he's Lord, my healer. He's Lord, my provider. Every time they encountered something about his character or his nature, they uh, declared who he was. They said, the I am is the, the Lord who provides, the Lord who heals, etc., etc. This encounter of the name and the person of God. Uh, and also at that point, it's probably the first time in the Bible that we get this understanding that God is Father. So he's holy, he's different from us, but he's also Father. And so we get that revelation because God says to, to Moses, go down to Pharaoh and say, what does he say? Let my people go. Okay, that's from the movie or the cartoon. In the Bible, <laughs> it actually says, let my firstborn son go. Go and say to Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go. Because God wants to identify himself as father. 
So the holy other than us, God, who is so far out there and so different that you can't even step on the same ground that he's been on because it's holy, also in that moment with Moses identifies himself as being holy. And so we are brought, because of what Jesus has done, into this depth of relationship with God where he reveals himself, where he reveals his holiness. But rather than being undone, rather than being unmade and unable to respond to him, because of what Jesus did and because the Spirit is in us, we are being transformed into his likeness. We're being transformed into the likeness of a holy God. I see God. I worship and I glorify God. I become more like him. And actually in doing that, I am being restored into my created image. And in doing that, I'm giving glory to him because he is holy. And, and Jesus comes to do that. And at first Peter says um, it even more, and this is where we get really challenged. Um, trying to think if I have this on the screen. I do. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so the call of the Christian life is not to be good. It's not to be nice. It's not to be kind or friendly or anything like that. Because... Do you know what? There are lots of non-Christians who are far better at most of that than most of you. Okay? Not anybody in particular, but just in general. What I'm saying is that if you work really, really hard, you can be kind and nice and good. And that's wonderful. But it doesn't make you a Christian. What makes us Christians is that we are being transformed by the indwelling presence of God and our desire is to be like him and our desire is to be holy. But what we very often do is that we just kind of work back from that and we go, well, you know, I couldn't really be holy. I can't really be like God. It's a lot of hard work, to be honest. And so rather than kind of setting the bar at holiness, I'm going to set the bar at kind of quite good and nice, particularly on Sundays, because that's what I can do. That's what I can achieve. And we, we all do that, you know, because um, if we don't do that, we have to struggle all the time with failure and disappointment and shame, and guilt. I'm called to be holy, but I'm rubbish. And so we get under all this condemnation so that we stop actually trying very often, and we just settle for some kind of vague mediocrity. Oh, sure, you know, we'll just be nice and kind and do the nice Christian thing. But God says, be holy as I am holy. We're made in his image, and we're called to be like him. We're not just called to be all right. Colossians 1.21 says, uh, Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So because of what Jesus has done in his physical body, we are presented as holy. And if Jesus really means something to us, it should be our desire. 
having been presented holy before God to live holy lives. And the more we see of God, the more we see his holiness, the more we know we need to change. And so um, I want to read you a little story about what happens when God's spirit moves in power. And this is a story that comes from, uh, this is from a book called Living Holiness by Helen Roosevelt. Uh, and it's talking about what happened in a certain part of the, the Congo when revival came. And what I mean by revival and what we say when we use the word revival is that when God's spirit and God's power moves supernaturally, where people, Christians, are renewed and changed and transformed, non-Christians come and give their lives to Jesus in tens, twenties, fifties, hundreds, thousands, where there is a move of God where it's not about Oh, you know, we were really amazing and we had a fantastic church and we did this amazing campaign. Everybody goes, this is not the work of man. This is the work of God. So let me read this to you. Our people have had a revelation of the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. And they know now, not in their heads, but in their hearts, that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Before it was, as it were, the missionary's interpretation of the word, now it is the Holy Ghost convincing them of the truth. Scores and scores have been absolutely broken before the cross. The Holy Ghost has dug deep and brought to light the filth which had been buried away for years. There was no escape. They had to call a spade a spade. Big and so-called little sins had to be classified together. In the light of the cross and a holy God, everything looked vile. Bad thoughts, criticisms against one's neighbor, pride in every form, lust in the thought life, worldliness, etc., etc. We're only kidding ourselves most of the time about how we live and what we do, how we behave. If we had an encounter like Isaiah and we saw God, we would probably be lying on the ground thinking, woe is me, I am undone. In fact, we wouldn't be able to remain in God's presence except that we're dearly loved children, as we sang earlier, that God loves us and he's for us, that he calls him, us to himself. He calls us to be changed and to be transformed. And so when God moves in power, people become obsessed with holiness. Because when you've seen God, when you've seen what he's like, you won't settle for anything else. You won't settle for the sins that you just kind of let go by. You won't settle for um, things in your life that are not filling your soul. You'll not settle for anything except him. And our nation needs revival. Our world needs revival. We need revival. Our families need revival. There's a lot of uncertainty and economic crisis looming. There's moral decay uh, all around us. People are abandoning the ways of God and just following what everybody else happens to think. One of the most powerful forces in our society today is the general thought of what people think in, in social media. 
whatever people think is, is the way that we live because we're afraid to step outside of that. Because if we ste step out outside of that, we come under criticism. We're called names, we don't fit in. Sexuality has become warped and distorted and our kids don't know how to think in a healthy way about that kind of stuff. Money and things, like I said, with the IKEA catalog is what we start to fill our lives with. We have a mental health epidemic. We have a loneliness epidemic. We have more stuff and more things and more comforts than we've ever had at any point in history, and yet there's more brokenness too. And so when we look around in our world and our society, what we need to realize is that we need to see a move of God. And if we see a move of God, he is holy. And that is who we will encounter. I'm going to read you. I'm sorry I'm reading a lot of things and, and, and stuff today, but... Um, just really some stuff that God has put on my heart. But this uh, is a book called The Year of Grace. Some of you will know it. Uh, and it's about the 1859 revival in uh, Ulster. Um, as in nine counties, Ulster, roughly. It did spread slightly further than that. But in 1859, there was a revival in this country. That revival touched this town and the towns around it and this county all over it. Tens of thousands of people gave their lives to Jesus. But how long ago is 1859? It's almost 160 years. At the 150th anniversary, there was a, a meeting uh, just down in Portadown at the river there, at the Pleasure Gardens, because that's where there had been a meeting in 1859. Um, to kind of pray and commemorate and to ask God to move again. But let me read you one story. And it's from somewhere up in... Um, near Coleraine. I'll just paraphrase the first bit of it. But basically what happened was there was a, a schoolroom full of, of uh, boys because the boys and girls were taught separately in those days. And one of them was crying. And he was crying because he had become aware of his sin. And so the schoolmaster says to another boy who had gone through this, a similar experience a few days before, could you take that wee fella outside and just pray with him and, and help him to work through uh, what God's doing in his life? And so the two boys go outside and they get down on their knees on the ground and they start crying out to God. And this guy's crying out to God because he has an awareness of his sin. The reason why he has an awareness of his sin is because he has an awareness of the holiness of God. And so the two of them are on their knees. They're crying out to God. And this is what it says. Their silent grief soon broke into a bitter cry. As, they, as this reached the ears of the boys in the room, it seemed to pierce their hearts as by one consent they cast themselves upon their knees and began to cry for mercy. The girls' school was above, and so the cry no sooner penetrated to their room than apparently, well knowing what morning it was, and hearing in it a call to themselves, they too fell upon their knees and wept. The united cry of all these children reached the adjoining streets. Every ear prepared by the Spirit at once knew that this was the voice of God, and he pierced their hearts. And one by one the neighbors came and cast themselves upon their knees and joined in the cry for mercy. 
These increased and continued to increase till first one room, then another, then a public office on the premises. In fact, every available spot was filled with sinners seeking God. So many people came out and so many people were changed and transformed that day, almost an entire village. And nobody left there until 11 p.m. That's when they were getting rid of everybody. And there was revival. Revival broke out. One child, then another, then a whole school, then a whole town, who suddenly had a revelation of who God was and the brokenness of themselves. And they turned to him. And would we like to see revival? Would we like to see our, our, our world change and transform? Would we like to see the spirit break out? Something needs to change in us. You know, if I knew revival was coming, do you know what I'd do? I'd get on my knees and I'd cry out to God because I know that when it does come, I'm going to experience his presence and his holiness. And uh, David says it like this in um, Psalm 139. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting and so what i want to just do as we're finishing is i just want to encourage us i know it seems like pretty heavy the holiness of god but i think that when the weight of of a revelation of the holiness of god starts to sit upon us what happens is that we realize so much of what jesus has done at the cross and who we are, and who we are becoming, and that this holy God is also our Father God, who loves us and is for us, and his desire is that we be changed and transformed into his likeness. His desire is that we would be changed into his likeness. But what is our desire? We need our actual desires to change. We need God to change our hearts. We need to start crying out to God, come and change my heart. Come and see if there's any broken way in me. Come and give me that desire to seek you, to seek your face. And as we see him, as we see him, we will be transformed. We with unveiled faces behold his glory. We see him are being transformed by the work of the Spirit. So that when he comes in power, when he comes in holiness... Wouldn't it be great if we were more ready to receive him, to receive what he is doing? We pray for revival. We pray for renewal in our land. But are we ready for the consequences? Of, are we ready for what that might mean? And so the place from which we get ready is not condemnation. It's not shame. It's not, oh, I'm not good enough. It's actually this God is going to change and transform us into his likeness. That's a wonderful, amazing truth. So the band is going to come up and just uh, lead us in, in one song. And um, I would ask you just to, as we as we sing that one song, we just ask God to come and just reveal maybe one or two things that need to change in our hearts and our lives so that we may come become more like him. So let's stand.